Listener, it is minute 24 of this podcast recording, and we have not yet started. <laughs> okay, let's do this. I was going to say, let's f*** this puppy, but I was recently told by my boyfriend that that's, like, not something people say. What'd you say? Did you say, let's f*** this puppy? That's not, is that not an expression that you're familiar with? <laughs> I've never, <laughs> never heard that. Screw the pooch is an expression. Screw no, no, the no, no, pooch no. I've heard. They mean different things. Please, listeners, reach out. Have you heard this expression or did I make it up? Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drake. We are approaching the two-year mark of living with the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S. And while the Omicron wave is receding, it seems likely that COVID isn't going to just disappear. Meanwhile, people are sad and angry about COVID and everything else. In surveys, more Americans are saying they're unhappy in their own lives. Two thirds of Americans say the country is on the wrong track. And Biden is a point away from Trump's record for being the least popular president at this point in his term. Today, we're gonna talk about how that discontent might be tied to COVID and COVID policies and what Americans really want in terms of COVID regulations right now. We're also gonna check in on where the redistricting process stands around the country after some big developments last week. New York signed into law a map that aggressively advantages Democrats, and elsewhere, state and federal courts are striking down maps they consider to be gerrymanders. Here with me to discuss it is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us, Senior Elections Analyst Nathaniel Reka. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. And Senior Science Writer Maggie Kurth. Hey, Maggie. Hey. How is everyone doing? Ready to talk about our two favorite, really pleasant topics, COVID and gerrymandering? Mm, what a great Monday. The things I've loved most about the last two years. <laughs> um, things I'm passionate about, COVID, <laughs> gerrymandering. <laughs> I mean, on this podcast, you might say. Okay, so essentially, our discussion about what Americans want on COVID policy was prompted by a listener request that we discuss a poll as a good or bad use of polling. So we're gonna we're gonna talk about that particular poll, but then we're gonna broaden out the conversation to something bigger than that one particular poll. And here it is. So a late January poll from Monmouth asked, do you tend to agree or disagree with the following statement? It's time we accept COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives. The responses were 70% agree and 28% disagree. So this got a decent amount of attention. The listener suggested, you know, getting on with our lives is pretty nonspecific and can mean different things to different people. So I ask all of you, is this a good or bad way of trying to understand what Americans want when it comes to COVID? Maggie, kick us off. I think it's a pretty bad way of understanding it. And I partly say that just because I'm at a point now where whenever I am interviewing scientists, they keep talking to me about how frustrated they are that politicians and pollsters and basically the zeitgeist is framing this as like, you have two choices and one of them is to stay in lockdown forever or the other option is to get over it and not care about anything and just go back to 2019 living. And they keep saying, like, that's not your choices. Why do we keep framing it this way? And this poll is just another one of those things that frames it in that way. 
while simultaneously being so vague that I could answer yes to either one of those, depending on how I interpret what they mean. Fair. Okay. Nathaniel and Nate, what do y'all think about this poll? I think it's good in companion with other polls asking about specific policy questions, because you cannot really understand the current state of COVID debate without having a poll like this, right? Particularly why Democrats, the left, has a lot of internal dissent. If you look at this Monmouth number, 70%, that means almost every Republican says they're over it, but it splits the Democratic voters pretty evenly. And that mirrors discussions and debates you have online or in real life, where it's not so much that there's disagreement over particular policies, although there is, but like it's about whether you're on what I call like a war footing toward COVID or not. Are you kind of saying that we still have to put this at the forefront of kind of our lives, at the forefront of the news? Or is it like, well, we have to accept the fact that this is endemic now and we have to quote unquote go back to normal, right? You know, again, it is different. It's like if you have questions about like, do you want more or less government spending? And then you say, should we spend more on this particular program? Those are both informative for understanding how the politics of it works. And sometimes people kind of, in those situations, prefer the specifics more than the generalities. Generality might be that we don't necessarily want a bunch more government spending, but you say, well, what about this? And like similarly, like you people might say, well, I'm over COVID restrictions. And you ask, well, what if we still have an indoor mask mandate? And some people who say they're over it say, that's fine. So I still prefer an indoor mask mandate or they prefer a vaccine mandate or whatever else. But this is an important companion to to the way people feel about COVID, the way it affects, I think, the president's popularity and the discussions that we we see taking place. Maggie, what do you make of that? Do you think that's a fair assessment of this poll? I mean, I see your point, but I also sort of feel like there's like an Ouroboros problem here of like continuing to frame the issue as this kind of false choice between two extremes that are not very clearly laid out, so you don't even exactly know what extremes you're agreeing to, is part of why everyone has these disagreements amongst the people that still think COVID matters to begin with, and why everyone's so frustrated and why everyone's so angry and why everyone feels like the Biden administration is failing. And then you ask them again, like, what about these extremes? And surprise, they are still annoyed about the extremes. Like, I, just, I feel like the framing of it that way is telling us more that people want a better plan than it is telling us that people are ready to be completely done with like what they want for policy, right? Like it doesn't actually tell you much about what people want for policy. It tells you people are frustrated, but part of why people are frustrated is because of polls like this. I mean, I think in half the country, there are really no COVID restrictions whatsoever. And in the other half of the country, there's maybe mask mandates and not a whole lot else. There are vaccine requirements for entry for indoor businesses in some of the blue cities, including New York. So a lot of the country's in a place where they are ignoring COVID. I don't know how else to put it. And I've traveled a fair bit and, you know, COVID's just not on the brain as much if you're in Florida as compared to New York, for example. And so like a lot of people are living like that already, you know, whether you define that as extreme or not, I don't know exactly. But I wish people had asked about media coverage of COVID, whether they think there's not enough or, or too much. Sometimes I think people like have figured out how to navigate 
their lives and they may or may not encounter a lot of visible impacts of COVID. It depends on where they live and it depends on their personal circumstances. But if you kind of read CNN or, or the New York Times or wherever else, it's all about where cases are spiking, the new variants that might come. It's all this message that you can never, ever kind of let your guard down and that will never really kind of be over this disease. It's endemic. I think people are reacting to that in part, that there's no kind of respite from it. Because you can say, well, okay, you have these relatively slim sets of restrictions in place in places, so why are people worried about this to begin with? And I think part is because of the mental bandwidth of calculating, when do I have to bring my mask with me? When don't I, right? When do I have to abide by certain regulations? When do I worry about my kid's school closing or whatever else, right? It's just the kind of mental strain of having this new category of things that people have to worry about. And you can say people are being selfish for that, but I'm just trying to explain why 70% of Americans respond in a certain way to that question, right? And I think the fact that like, even if you are in a place where you can afford to not be super risk averse, maybe COVID's declined in your area, just the constant focus on it, I think kind of has worn people down a lot. And that's why I see a gap between how people feel about the regulations themselves, which is more 50-50, and this question where it's 70-30 or 65-35, if you ask a slightly different form of the question, in terms of people's attitude towards should we be kind of in, in crisis mode? Okay, I want to dig into some more polling so we can paint a bigger picture. Nathaniel, are you going to be the tiebreaker here? What do you, is this a good use of polling or bad use of polling? I'm not going to be the tiebreaker because I'm kind of on the fence. Um, <laughs> oh, come on. So it's going to be 1.5. Do it for the 1. listeners. 5. So I was going to say this was a, like a, a fine use of polling. So maybe I'm more on, on Nate's side. I completely agree with Maggie that it kind of boils down the COVID debate, which should be a lot more nuanced into a binary question and that that's not great for anybody. Um, and it doesn't kind of accurately reflect the reality on the ground. But I also, just from like the perspective of a pollster, you know, I'm not a pollster, obviously. We tell people all the time that we have 538 are not pollsters, but I write about pollsters a lot and I empathize with their perspective. And I do think that the fact that this wasn't the only question in the poll is key. Like Monmouth did ask other questions about specific policies. So to Nate's point, I don't think that this question was meant to get at the question of what people prefer on policy and COVID restrictions, but rather it, it was a vibe check, if you will. A vibe check. I like that. Okay, and with that, I guess, since you were the tiebreaker, this gets awarded a fine use of polling. But I really do want to broaden this conversation out. So I'm going to bring up a separate poll, and we can gauge if this gives us more or better information. So Echelon Insights tried to get a more granular picture of what people think about COVID policies. 55% of Americans said, quote, COVID-19 should be treated as an endemic disease that will never fully go away with seasonal waves like the flu that we should respond to with vaccines or other treatments to reduce the severity of illness. It's 55% of Americans. 37% said, quote, COVID-19 should continue to be treated as an emergency. And in response to rising case numbers, we should implement vaccine requirements, masking, and other restrictions until cases fall to zero or a negligible amount. Does this fall into similar challenges or traps that the first poll did? Or does this start to give us a better picture of where Americans stand on COVID policy? I mean, I feel like this continues to fall into similar traps because what the scientists keep telling me that we really need is policy that responds to the fact that, yeah, this is a thing that's not going to go away. It is going to come in waves 
and we should be ready to respond to those waves and have plans in place. And those plans are going to include things like masking. Those plans are going to include things like, hey, there might be a point in January where you need to shut down a school or shut down a school district because you're out of teachers. You know, like these things are going to come up occasionally. And having the policy be either nobody has to do anything other than get vaccines, which has kind of been the Biden policy when they came into office and that turned out to not really work well. And that was part of, I think, where a lot of everybody's just exhaustion really started to kick in was when Delta kind of turned hot back summer on its head. Or we have to continue living like it's an emergency forever and you can never have a life again. Like there's obviously going to be conflict over those two particular options. And we need policy options that are not that. And I just continue to be completely frustrated with the idea of framing it as one way or the other because... It feeds into a political mindset that I think doesn't actually get us any closer to solving problems or to Nate's point, doesn't get us any closer to helping people deal with the decision exhaustion. Like the decision exhaustion is absolutely real. Like this is stuff I've been writing about for the past two years, but continuing to let politicians tell us that we either have to be constantly in fear or constantly not caring about hundreds of thousands of people dying, those are not good choices. (laughs) Yeah, I actually kind of thought this was, in a way, a slightly worse use of polling than the Monmouth one, because the Monmouth one was just a vibe check, right? It didn't even try to wrestle with these issues of policies. This one does kind of dive into questions of policy, but still presents it as a binary. So, like, the question says, like, do you want to treat it as endemic and say, we should treat it with vaccines, or should we use masks and vaccine requirements until cases fall to zero? What if you're a person who thinks that it is endemic, like the flu, but still thinks we should use masking and vaccine requirements to reduce the incidence? Which answer do you go with in that case? So this one, I think, is is more muddled because it kind of brings in these specific policies and tries to identify them with one side or the other. I mean, I think there's a group of people who are tired of listening to the experts and listening to the scientists, right? And I guess I maybe disagree with the rest of this podcast. You know, these absolutely are political decisions, and they are decisions that politicians should make, ideally with input from experts, but they are up to the people and the government to make. And I think there's a reasonable point of view that, like, at this point, the big problem with COVID in the United States is that a bunch of unvaccinated people, unvaccinated adults, because it doesn't hit kids very hard, are still dying in big numbers, mostly in red states. And that whether a school child in Maryland has a mask on has almost nothing to do with whether someone in South Dakota who didn't get vaccinated or didn't get boosted dies of COVID. So, you know, this kind of question of like, is this passing a cost-benefit test, I think, is is highly (laughs) uncertain. And you have kind of this strand of expert debate. You know, David Leonhardt at the New York Times is a popular figure among some, unpopular among others for kind of being more outspoken about this than than a lot of people. But Nate, you're talking about the values of policy, which fair, like people should talk about that. But when we're trying to get to the bottom of what Americans actually want, does this poll give us a good sense? You know, whether you think that what Americans want is stupid or not, 
is almost like besides the point or whether or not I agree with them is almost besides the point. We live in a democracy. You know, you kind of have to deal with what Americans want, whether it's what you want or not. What I'm saying is like people are reacting to the framing that we're still in a crisis and that we should consult the experts. Like that's what people are saying they're not that cool with. No, are they saying they're not that cool that they should consult the experts? Are they saying that they're not that cool with the idea that we have to remain in constant crisis mode? Because those are two completely different things, Nate. I think they're saying they don't want to be in crisis mode. I also think kind of like the experts, in particular the CDC, have lost a lot of trust in polling in the course of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, I think with good reason. (laughs) But like your premise, Maggie, is that we are still in a crisis and the question is what to do about it. And a lot of people don't like that premise. That's what these polls are saying, even though it might be empirically the correct premise, right? People are tired of having that be the premise that is used to argue about restrictions, which are not very many, by the way, in most parts of the country. There are no lockdowns anywhere in the United States, as far as I can tell, and there haven't been since like last April, basically. But like people are reacting to like the premise that, oh, what must we do about this? Because again, if you look at like, if you ask about How do you feel about mask mandates? Those are actually decently popular. I mean, I think they're like 52% or something in the Monmouth poll. Vaccine mandates have become a little bit less popular, but kind of in the sniffing distance of 50-50 still. So I'm just, again, trying to explain, and maybe it is reflected by the fact that I am one of those people who is very much in the, I got vaccinated, I got boosted, I got COVID at some point, by the way. And I'm in the move on camp, right? And I think that most people I know in my life are the same way. And I'm just kind of like trying to explain why I think people like us are in the in the majority. I want to clarify that, like, my point is actually not that we have to remain in crisis mode and we should remain in crisis mode. In fact, that's both not my point and my perspective. And it's also not what a lot of the researchers I've been talking to lately are saying. That what I am trying to push back on here is the idea that crisis mode is the only way that you can frame the idea that you want to do anything at all. But these popular mask mandates, for instance, like that is a thing that is both popular and it's also a thing that's not dependent on being in crisis mode. But we keep sticking it into a bucket in these polls that frames it as a thing that goes along with crisis mode. And that is absolutely an incorrect and a flawed framing and is contributing to this continued sense that you have to fight over stuff that maybe you actually don't even have to freaking fight over. Can we take that point and actually lay out some of the rest of the polling landscape? Because I should say here also, our intern Emily Vineski did a great job going through lots and lots of polling on COVID. I read just two examples, but pollsters are asking a ton about this stuff. Maybe Nathaniel, jump in here, looking at the whole polling picture, or at least a chunk of it, what stuck out to you in terms of trend lines or where you can point to majorities in the polling? Yeah, I mean, I think the issue continues to be that people's views are very nuanced on this and they support certain types of restrictions and they oppose other types. And it can also matter how you ask the question and probably it matters like what mood you catch them in on any given day. Like it's a very difficult question to pin down public opinion on, I think. Some of the things that I noticed, so like, 
Nate mentioned this earlier, but mask mandates remain popular. This is from the Monmouth poll. 52% support them, 45% oppose them. So it is polarized, but you have a, a slight majority in favor of mask mandates. But the vaccine mandates uh, are proof of vaccination in order to go to work in an office or a setting where they are around other people. That only has 43% support and 53% of people oppose that. Also, as Nate mentioned, that idea used to be fairly popular. It used to be basically flipped 53-45 back last July, and that has kind of slowly decreased. You also see among parents of K-12 students basically just less of a tolerance for like online education or like canceling school. So back in July 2020, you saw 64% of those parents saying that they thought the risk to students of getting or spreading coronavirus should be a major consideration in deciding whether to open or close schools. And that number now in January 2022 is down to only 43% think that should be a major consideration. By contrast, now 67% of parents say that the possibility that students will fall behind academically should be a major consideration. So you're, you're kind of seeing the scale tilt more toward the making sure their kids get a, a better education, presumably as people come around to this idea that this isn't going around anytime soon. You know, my kids are losing valuable time in their educational upbringing. Same. <laughs> That's what I say to this education poll. I'm a tiny bit suspicious about that mask result, which was pretty close, but like, what is it, 52% in favor, 45% opposed? Mm -hmm. And the reason why is that when I've traveled to different parts of the country, not very many people wear a mask in places where there's not a mask requirement. You go to Kansas City, where I was for the holidays, in the middle of the Omicron surge, and indoors, crowded space, people doing their Christmas shopping, maybe 25% of people are wearing a mask indoors during a surge. You know, and Kansas City's a blue city, right? You go to Florida. Well, Florida's Florida. I mean, you also don't have to go to Kansas City or Florida. You go to my neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. Like, I've been able to go out dancing and go to bars and do whatever I want this whole time. Yeah, you go to a sporting event and you go to a New York Rangers game. If you have a vaccine requirement, which you have for New York Stadia, you don't have a mask requirement. Maybe 5% of Rangers fans are wearing a mask in a crowded building with 18, 19,000 people or something. It's people really don't like having those masks on when they're given a choice. So that leads me, you know, maybe it's my sample is wrong. I don't know, right? But there are a couple issues here with respect to the polling. Number one being, it may be that people who are more COVID cautious are more likely to respond to polls. There was evidence of this during the election in 2020, where people who were socially distancing at home more were more likely to respond to polls. One reason the polls had a democratic bias. There may also be a degree of, you know, social desirability bias. You might kind of informally call it virtue signaling, where people say they're being more careful than they actually are. So again, I'm a little suspicious that if you actually surveyed everybody in the country and kind of were able to tease out their true feelings that 52% would favor, favor a mask mandate, I guess you can say, hey, I'll wear a mask if I have to, but I won't if I don't have to. Maybe that makes some degree of sense. But I think if anything, there are reasons to think that these polls overstate the number of COVID cautiousness in the population. So I have three thoughts in response to that, one of which is in favor of your point eight and two are pushing back against it. So I contain multitudes. Um, I think one factor we could be seeing is that these are asking about kind of mask mandates and like it is kind of projecting what you think other people should do and maybe isn't what you want to do personally. So maybe 52% of people actually do 
want there to be mask mandates for everybody else, but they're like, oh, but I personally am smart enough to tell when I can safely take my mask off to eat at a hockey game or, or, or whatever, or just when I'm popping in to go shopping. But other people can't be trusted. I think that is probably a fairly widespread view. The other two points I would also say, I think, especially like, you know, if you're going shopping in Kansas City and only 25% of people are wearing masks, I bet the people who support the mask mandates and are, are really still afraid of COVID probably just aren't going shopping in places that don't have mask mandates in general. They're just staying home. So that could also skew things. I mean, there's also data when you ask people, are you vaccinated? And polls tend to overestimate the number of people who are vaccinated, even though you actually know what the number is, although there's some fuzziness in CDC. And so that's kind of direct evidence that polls overstate COVID cautiousness and or people are, in some cases, maybe misleading people about their vaccination status. Aaron Rodgers. How much does nuance kind of factor into this? I mean, just in terms of like, I would assume that there is a lot of difference between like mask mandate forever in all places and how people are thinking about like, should there be a mask mandate in my school? Should there be a mask mandate in places where like transmission risk is higher? Is Should there be a mask mandate at X kind of event if there is vaccination requirements already. Like, I'm sure that there's a lot of nuance to this also. And what you have in your head about what that means probably factors into like what you say. Yeah, Maggie, I think that's really important because when you ask people about mask mandates, they might just be thinking of, okay, what are the places in my life where a mask is mandated? And do I approve of that? And few people outside of states like New York or whatever have blanket mask mandates in, you know, just private enterprises and things like that. So it would be very few people who would be thinking in terms of, you know, New York state's law, which is if it's not a location where you have to be vaccinated, then you must wear a mask. For most people, it's like, okay, do I want to keep wearing a mask on an airplane? And then when you ask specifically even about airplanes and some of the polling, I'm looking at an Echelon Insights poll, 70% say, okay, sure, keep the mask mandate on airplanes. But when it comes to other situations, people might not be as supportive. People might not be as supportive in schools. They might be more supportive on the subway and less supportive in the workplace. So yes, I think in the polling you see there is nuance. People are, I think, actually more supportive of masks in schools than in other settings. Yeah. Which does kind of get to the question of like, you know, maybe my optimal policy is that everyone else wears a mask so I don't have to, right? Make the kids wear a mask all day, but I'm not going to come to work with, with a mask. Obviously, if you kind of ask a question that's like, during the current surge, should a mask mandate be required, that will tend to get much more yeses than just saying, do you support a mask mandate? What's different about this Omicron surge is that usually when you have the Delta surge or whatever else, opinion swings in the same direction as the number of cases in the U.S., right? Whereas here it hasn't. Here, if anything, in this Monmouth poll, support for restrictions has ticked down a little bit, even though you just had the highest case counts in the history of the pandemic so far. You want to know why that probably is? Do you have a guess, Nate? I think people, I mean, I think people are sick of it. I mean, it's also true that Omicron is less deadly per case. Here's a poll that I found maybe like the most evocative of all of the polling that we dug up. It was from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It is 77% of Americans now think that it is inevitable that most people in the U.S. will eventually get COVID. And that is a very recent poll that came from late January. So I think that's maybe in part what changed is that a lot of people came to terms with getting COVID. Yeah, I think that might be the case. You know, certainly in a lot of these are breakthrough infections, although they don't lead to very many hospitalizations, thankfully. But I think people may just realize that, like, there is some inevitability to it. I mean, the other dynamic, though, is that, like, if you listen to public health officials or politicians, then 
there are a lot of promises of temporary restrictions that become less than temporary, become medium term or long term. I think Suffolk actually asked a question about lockdowns and they said, do you support lockdowns if they would actually end the pandemic once and for all after six weeks? And I'm anti-lockdown, but I would take like a six-week lockdown to end the pandemic once and for all. But like 75% of people said no, I think because they were rebelling against the rhetoric of like, this will finally end things, right? They don't trust anymore that temporary measures will be temporary. And so, I mean, I think like maybe it's a way to kind of square the circle with our kind of earlier discussion, Maggie, is like, I think if you wanted to sell that we should have a mask mandate in place that you would put terms and conditions on it such that it would go away at some point. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. We just had a one of our first COVID conversations where we're doing this series of interviews with researchers that we have been going back and talking to over and over in the past two years. And the first guy like wanted to talk about the metrics that are being used to determine like when different kinds of COVID response get put into place. And my first question to the man was like, who's actually setting metrics in advance that they're sticking to and that continue to like be part of a predictable process? Because that's not freaking happening in my state. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like we would have a hell of a lot more trust in both mandates and government response to this if people had been setting Like, when we get to this level of transmission rates, we will do X. And you knew that this was coming and you could prepare for it and you knew things were going to ramp up and down. Like, that's actually what makes sense scientifically with this. And it is something that nobody's really consistently done. And it drives me up a wall. So I want to talk a little bit here about the politics of this. We've been trying to paint a picture of what Americans are thinking about COVID in general, specific policies. It looks like from the polling, as you mentioned, Nate, most Republicans are ready to move on. There's some division, but it's not much more than 15% of people who identify as Republicans taking the more cautious choice in this polling. Democrats seem somewhat split, and independents seem at this point to maybe side a little bit more with Republicans. Today, Democratic Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey announced that The state is ending mask mandates in schools. Tom Wolf in Pennsylvania, Democratic governor there, already did that last month. New York and Connecticut have their policies under review at the moment, are considering what to do next. Are blue state governors now feeling pressure from constituents to end COVID interventions? So we have the polling, but we also have how that intersects with policy and politics on the ground. Does it seem like the more cautious approach has kind of failed politically? I think that's becoming the conventional wisdom, particularly after the Virginia race, where people say it's CRT or COVID restrictions, but people think that the liberal stance towards school policy was unpopular. Again, that's somewhat debated by folks, but like, no, I think the conventional wisdom among politicians, first of all, it's always been like less restrictive than what the public health experts would want. Last spring, you know, states removed restrictions on things like indoor dining when a relatively small percentage of the population had been vaccinated so far, and that was probably against what most public health people would have done, right? So the politicians are trying to like square different interests. And I actually think politicians have probably done a pretty good job of kind of figuring out what public opinion <laughs> actually was in some sense, because that's what they're good at, right? That's why they're elected. I don't mean in like a particularly noble way. I just mean, they're, you're selecting for people who are good at like 
calibrating what public opinion actually is in their states. And if you're a politician, I think the vibe check stuff does matter, where maybe if you actually surveyed everyone in New Jersey, how do you feel about mask mandates for kids? It would still be modestly popular or even more than modestly popular, right? But the notion that we're, quote unquote, getting back to normal, as you see from like that monolith poll that we started off the segment with, that's a very popular notion. And correctly or not, I think probably correctly, Democratic politicians perceive that Biden and the Democrats will have more of a chance of keeping their majorities if people feel like things are are back to normal. Let me get another debate about like, well, is it we decide that or the pandemic decides that, right? That's a another sticky issue here that I think is part of the debate in democratic circles right now. But the politicians are making an educated guess that maybe the vibes matter more than the specifics. <laughs> maybe these policies like unmasks are a bit more unpopular in practice than the polls might let on. And or maybe people who are more enthusiastic about these policies are more likely to vote and have their votes be decided by these issues. So that's kind of dictating. And by the way, you do see actually in behavioral data, you saw people move from states that had more code restrictions to states like Florida that did not. Fairly substantial amount of net migration under COVID. You did not see much of the reverse. You didn't see people moving from Florida to California because they want more mask requirements, right? You didn't see very much of that. And so there is kind of lots of behavioral data to suggest that like people are kind of over it, whether they should be or not. And that's what politicians are responding to. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of other reasons why I might not move to California right now. Sure, but... (laughs) (laughs) I can't afford a house in in California and I can afford one in Florida. So I think that plays into that somewhat too. Okay, but partly like if you live in a place like California, you're paying for a lot of cultural amenities. And if those amenities are are shut down or are harder to enjoy because of COVID, then yeah, there's not much reason to live in an expensive place like California. One of the things that frustrates me about the way that like these polling questions have been framed is that it frames it as the reason why you are COVID cautious is whatever, you know, that happens to mean to you is that you're worried about getting it yourself. And most of the people I know who are the most cautious at this point are either people who are themselves or their family members are have some kind of immunocompromised or some kind of chronic illness or something that makes them particularly vulnerable or they are really concerned about that population and what they can do to make things safer for that population. And I don't see any of the framing of why people are making these decisions, what people might be interested in, what they might not be interested in, that sort of takes into account that question, which is a big, I think, complicated political question of how much does the majority owe to this small minority that is at a higher risk. I think there are lots of answers you could give to that, but I don't really see anybody grappling with that polls-wise that much. My question there, Maggie, though, is that for the people who are thinking a lot about that, they're probably answering the polling questions accordingly. But if you added that to the language of the polling question, you would be priming people in a way that they might you know, say they're more like sympathetic to keeping restrictions because of that population, when in reality, the more straightforward polling question that's just like, do you want a mass mandate or not? That might be closer to what their kind of resting opinion is. Wouldn't you worry about priming a certain response if you added that to the polling? I would certainly worry about that. What I think is bothering me, though, is that because that's not there, we end up in these conversations where the main argument 
that I keep seeing about like, well, you shouldn't actually worry about this because your kids aren't likely to get sick. You're not seriously sick. You're not likely to get seriously sick once you've been vaccinated. And then you get into these arguments where people are making that argument, but then other people are like, yeah, but that's not why I'm doing it. And the polls don't really capture that, but they tend to make people think that other people think things for different reasons than they actually think them or just not be clear. Well, you know what they say when you assume you make an ass out of you. (laughs) No, Right. Yes. That is an idiom as opposed to your dog one. If you look at data (laughs) on who is being more cautious, overwhelmingly, the dominant predictor is political partisanship. If you're a liberal Democrat, you're much more likely to to be and to say you prefer COVID-cautious policies to the point where young people actually say they are more worried about catching COVID than older people because young people are on average more liberal and political partisanship so outweighs anything else that even though objectively young people have much less to be worried about, they're actually more concerned about COVID. Interesting. Okay, so we have landed at this point where we have some fine, good, and not so great uses of polling. What Americans want is somewhat complicated. The vibe is like, let's move on. When it comes to some of the details, maybe there's a little more caution than the kind of overwhelming let's move on attitude. If you could ask the American public one question about what they want at this point, two years in, everyone's frustrated, everyone's exhausted. Well, I shouldn't say everyone. I think lots of people have moved on and are just living in states where it's easy to do that. And so maybe they aren't frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with, you know, inflation in that case. If you could ask Americans anything about what they want at this point in time, from politics, from COVID response, whatever, what would you ask them? What's the best use of polling that you can think of? Nathaniel, I throw it to you. Yeah, I mean, I really don't know, Galen. Like, I think this has been a really interesting discussion, and I'm honestly left with a question of whether there is a good way to measure public opinion on COVID. I guess where I come down is that I think that there is some small amount of value in the broader ecosystem for Monmouth asking its vibe check question, for Echelon asking its more specific questions, for all the specific policy questions. Each of these kind of helps us shine a light on a little bit of the overall picture and kind of through the accumulation of all of these different polling questions and wordings, we kind of get a picture that is, to be clear, very complex and nuanced and not easily summarized. But I think that the diversity of of questions is an asset in helping us get to the bottom of this. That's a cop out, Nathaniel. You don't want to ask Americans anything? I'm good. I'm good, man. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Nate, And Maggie, what question are you looking for in all of this? I think a lot of where my frustration is focused and a lot of where what my interest in what happens going forward is focused is less on Americans themselves and more on what the political aspect of how politicians have responded to this and how we've gotten into this space where kind of flailing reactivity has been the norm instead of something that is kind of predictable or like something that enables you to have a state that is both proactive and responsive to an ongoing pandemic without forcing people to live in crisis mode for the rest of their lives. And I don't know how to answer a poll question. Question. <laughs> so maybe maybe what I would actually like is to just yell at some politicians. <laughs> is that an option? I mean, we're journalists. You can ask them some questions. I don't think you can yell at them. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd be interested in polls that tease out among liberals and Democrats kind of what creates these big divides. Because, you know, I'll go online and you'll see some other person with a blue check mark say something like, well, I haven't really left my house except to run errands for a couple of months because of Omicron and all my friends feel the same way. And you'll find other people who are like, nothing's changed for me. I'm totally partying it up, right? Even though they might seem superficially similar. And I, I just kind of like to know what personality traits or political characteristics explain those differences because they seem they seem weird. Maybe people are selecting one another on the basis of risk aversion in ways that I hadn't thought of before. I guess I tend to hang out with people who are not very risk averse, but I never really thought of that as like a character. That's why we get along I'm, so well, Nate. I know, Galen. I always drag you to the club. Yeah, by which the I'm pandemic. selecting selecting friends. You know, I think there's also good use for non-polling data, like behavioral data. A, because it sidesteps any problems with social desirability bias or sampling issues. B, because it just kind of speaks directly to how people are actually behaving, right? So one thing I've looked at a lot is Open Table is a restaurant reservation website. And they just track how many reservations there are as compared to 2019. And that's a useful benchmark, right? That was down by about 15% before Omicron. Omicron reduced that further to maybe a 25 or 30% decline. And now it's kind of bouncing back to a 15% decline. But looking at that or like air travel data or the MTA tracks how many people use, use a subway every day. And there's movement tracking data. That stuff, I think, kind of speaks more directly to how people are actually behaving. Because if you're going to eat at a restaurant not a super safe activity, then that maybe says more about your behavior than what you might tell a pollster. All right. Well, I appreciate all of your input, although I'm afraid that Nate was the only one who actually answered the question. But you all had very good things to say. So <laughs> gold star for everyone. You know, one aspect of this that we didn't get to that I think is also interesting is that the government isn't necessarily in charge of a lot of the restrictions in our lives. Like we at this point haven't worked with each other in person for almost two years. And like, that's not because of New York State or New York City. That's just a private company's decision. And so there's all kinds of facets to this equation and things that people are reacting to when they think about how, how they feel during the pandemic. I, for one, would love to see you guys work with you in person. Maybe that will happen before too long. We'll see. Let's leave things there and talk about redistricting. Nathaniel, you are our redistricting tracker extraordinaire. So you're going to stick around and we're going to say goodbye to Nate and Maggie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Maggie. All right, let's take a look at all those gerrymanders. But first... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. At this point, the majority of states have signed their new district maps into law. About 14 or so states have yet to do so. And the picture of how this redistricting cycle will shake out has become a bit clearer. So right now, according to 538's tracker, from the states that have passed maps so far, Democrats have gained 11 seats that now lean their way, Republicans have lost three, and eight highly competitive seats have been eliminated. 
That is from a baseline of maps that were on average gerrymandered to advantage Republicans during the 2011 cycle. Some of the biggest news last week came out of New York, which signed its map into law, and also North Carolina, where the state Supreme Court struck down the map for being a partisan gerrymander that favored Republicans. There have also been other state courts and federal courts that have overturned maps. And so we're going to talk about where things stand, how it might all shake out. Nathaniel. Galen. The numbers that I mentioned are pretty significant in terms of where the redistricting tracker stands right now. And when I say redistricting tracker, listeners, you can actually go online to 538.com and see our tracker. You can see every proposed map all across the country. You can see who's up, who's down, whatever. So please go check it out. It's really cool. Nathaniel's been devoting a ton of time to that, along with other folks on the website as well. But that Democrats gaining 11 seats, Republicans losing three, eight competitive seats being eliminated. How close do you think that is to where things are going to end up ultimately? Yeah, I think it's getting there for sure. There's still a couple of big question marks in the redistricting process this year. There are a few big states that have yet to finish. So I would say that those question marks are, number one, what happens in Florida? So right now, Republicans, as as folks might know, control the state government in Florida and therefore control of redistricting. But there is disagreement within the Republican Party about how aggressive to be. So the state Senate has passed a map that is relatively fair and really doesn't change too much from the current map, while Governor Ron DeSantis has proposed a pretty strong Republican gerrymander. There are lots of technical details, but basically DeSantis is asking the state Supreme Court what kind of what type of districts, what kind of minority representation, what a fair district is, uh, and they're kind of waiting for the court to give an advisory opinion before they proceed there. But there's kind of a wide range of outcomes there in Florida. And then in addition, you have these maps that have been redrawn in North Carolina and Ohio. The maps that were overturned by courts, I should say, were very good for Republicans and netted them a few seats that really would have eaten into this Democratic advantage that we're seeing. The fact that those maps have been overturned is good for Democrats, but there's still a question about the Republican legislature is still going to have to draw the re-remaps for those states. Like, are they going to continue to press their luck or are they going to truly draw maps that are fair or, or maybe only slightly Republican biased enough to pass court muster? So those are kind of the question marks. I would say the likely scenario in each of these states is something where there isn't much of a change from the current status quo in these states, which does lean Republican, to be clear, but not as aggressively as certain factions of the party wanted this redistricting cycle to go. So I would say that the final outcome of Democrats clawing some some ground back, that is likely to happen. And it's just kind of a question of what the exact numbers are going to be. So it sounds like some potentially significant gerrymanders have been struck down by state-level courts. And we should make the distinction here that partisan gerrymandering can be unconstitutional according to a state constitution, but it is not unconstitutional according to the U.S. Constitution. The thing that is unconstitutional is racial gerrymandering, right? So when it's a federal court striking something down, that's because it has to do with racial gerrymandering. When it's a state court striking something down, that could be because of partisan gerrymandering. Let's talk about this. The States that have had their maps struck down, how is this happening? Does it kind of just seem like, okay, well, there are enough liberal judges on the court and it's Republican gerrymander, then they're going to strike it down. Or if there's enough, you know, conservative justices on the court and it's a Democratic gerrymander, they're going to strike it down. 
Are there things that are unique to the states where this is happening, or is this just more partisanship? Yeah, you know, I would say that it does vary from state to state. Um, and so far, the only two partisan gerrymanders that have been struck down were both drawn by Republicans, and they were struck down by Democratic to Democratic sympathetic state Supreme Courts. So in North Carolina, Democrats have a 4-3 majority on the state Supreme Court, and actually a lower court in the state upheld the congressional map at first, but then when it was appealed to the state Supreme Court with that Democratic majority, it got overturned. So I think that is a case of just kind of a Democratic majority state Supreme Court, and judicial elections do have this clearly partisan angle to them in North Carolina that folks in other states might be surprised to learn. But so I think in North Carolina, it is this clash between the Democratic judiciary or state Supreme Court specifically and the Republican legislature. In Ohio, it was actually kind of a function of the fact that there's this new redistricting reform in Ohio that is pretty complex. And it basically just encouraged the legislature at every turn to work in a bipartisan way to pass maps. And ultimately that failed. It did pass on a, basically a party line vote. But this reform that implemented this also added to the state constitution an explicit requirement for partisan fairness. And so the state Supreme Court, which is actually a 4-3 Republican majority in Ohio, but one of those Republicans is like a swing justice, kind of similar to like a, a, the equivalent of John Roberts. And that swing justice sided with the Democrats in order to overturn this map. And that would not have been possible without the fact that this language explicitly requiring partisan fairness was put into the state constitution via ballot measure earlier in the last decade. So that's kind of a different situation from North Carolina, where I think redistricting reformers deserve more credit for what happened in Ohio. So given that some of these maps are still in flux, what look like the biggest gerrymanders of the cycle? I would say on the Republican side, two of the biggest were North Carolina and Ohio, and those have obviously now been struck down. I would say the biggest that still remains is Texas. So going by the metrics on our site, it has an efficiency gap of R plus 15, and the median congressional district in Texas is 12 points redder than the state as a whole, uh, which basically puts Democrats in a 12-point whole or like it gives them a 12 point handicap if they want to carry a majority of the of the districts in the state. That's a way that you could think about it. And obviously in Texas, there are a ton of congressional seats in the state there. It has 38 districts now after the census. So the strength of the gerrymander, the aggressiveness of the gerrymander, plus the fact that so many seats are at stake there kind of gives it a one-two punch. On the Democratic side, I think of the surprises of the redistricting cycle has been just how aggressive Democrats have been at gerrymandering. So I want to give oh, honorable come on. mentions. You're surprised? Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think that after selling themselves as the party of fair maps and pushing HR1 and redistricting reform throughout the decade, I mean, it's not surprising that a political party would look out for its interests, certainly. But I think that the brazenness with which they've done it, let's just say I'm surprised to say there hasn't been more dissent within the party. So, for example, one of the big gerrymanders that Democrats have passed is the one that passed last week in New York, which basically created 22 Democratic seats and only four Republican seats, which even in a blue state is very lopsided ratio, obviously. And that map required two thirds of the legislature to vote in favor of it in order to pass. And I was not sure that they were going to be able to get that because there's some conservative Democrats or one in particular. Um, and then, of course, there I would imagine that there are some who, you know, have kind of these moral misgivings about, you know, being the party that is for fair maps and yet voting for this you know, very aggressive gerrymander. But in the end, Democrats almost entirely stuck together on the vote. So that did surprise me. Yeah. 
And so what's the efficiency gap in New York? So the efficiency gap in New York is not as aggressive as the one in Texas, but it is still hefty. It is D plus nine. So the, the creators of efficiency gap, which for readers who don't know, is is a measure of which parties' votes are drawn or distributed more efficiently, aka fewer of their votes are wasted. And so the creators of the efficiency gap developed this formula for determining like what they would consider like an unconstitutional gerrymander and and what they would consider within kind of a normal range. And, and this would be in New York would be above the threshold for being an unconstitutional gerrymander. I will say, though, that the courts explicitly rejected efficiency gap as a hard metric to use. But right. so we're just kind of using it for information purposes only, let's say. OK, but here's the thing, Nathaniel. This was supposed to be the first ever cycle that New York State was going to use this new bipartisan commission to draw fairer maps, et cetera, et cetera. There was like a two-thirds majority clause in that law that said two-thirds of the state legislature can override the commission and, you know, basically draw their own maps. But do you think that at this point there's the risk of a constitutional challenge to these democratic gerrymandered maps in New York? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the state constitution, kind of similar to the situation in Ohio, has a requirement that the map not unduly favor one political party, um, which it sure looks like it does. There are other requirements for compactness. The map, some of the districts in New York City in particular are, I don't think you could call them compact by any definition. My district. Are you in the 10th? The 10th. Yeah. The 10th district. It goes basically from the upper west side of Manhattan down through Manhattan, and then it crosses over into Brooklyn, and then it kind of zigzags through Brooklyn to get a bunch of neighborhoods there and then ends like basically on the New York Bay, the shore there. It is quite contorted. Goes through a tunnel. I mean, who's going to represent all of the sewer rats? <laughs> who's pizza rats, new Congressman Galen? <laughs> I mean, it's Jerry Nadler. All right. But yeah, I would definitely think that the map should be, you shouldn't assume that it'll see the light of day at the end. The difference is that New York's Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, uh, is entirely composed of Democratic appointees. So it's an open question. You know, you kind of don't have this dynamic that you had in certainly in North Carolina and even in Ohio to some extent where the court was was split. You know, the, the ideology of the court in New York would suggest that they will uphold the map, but the language of the Constitution suggests that they wouldn't if that is overturned. That'd be interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the first test of whether a Democratic gerrymander would be overturned in court, whereas the ones that have been overturned so far this year have been Republican gerrymanders. And Maryland and Illinois are also Democratic gerrymanders, but those are states that were already pretty gerrymandered in favor of Democrats, right? Particularly Maryland, yeah. I would point more to the Illinois map as being more egregious personally. The last map there was kind of an attempted gerrymander that didn't quite work out the way that it was intended, or at least it took a while before it got the intended result. And I should say that there is the possibility for these quote-unquote dummy-manders. We look at the districts with the results that we know today, like the 2020 presidential election. But in 2010, not many people would have predicted that the suburbs would be as blue as they ended up becoming in 2018 and 2020. So we can't necessarily predict whether these maps will perform as intended. We can only go by what we know right now. But based on what we know right now, the Illinois map did net Democrats a few more seats. We're looking at now 13 or 14 Democratic seats in Illinois compared to only three Republican seats. So again, Illinois is a blue state, but not that blue. You know, and that's another map that by efficiency gap, which in this case is D plus 13, rates as a pretty aggressive Democratic gerrymander. So we've been talking about partisan gerrymandering, and the line can sometimes be a little bit blurry, but there's also, of course, racial gerrymandering. And a federal court struck down Alabama's map 
as a racial gerrymander. You know, maybe longtime listeners of the pod are familiar with this difference because of the Voting Rights Act and how it was amended in the year since the 60s and interpreted by the courts. Maps cannot unfairly crack or pack minority communities. That is unconstitutional across the United States, different from partisan gerrymandering. So what did the federal court find in Alabama's case? How does Alabama need to change its map in order to comply with the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, so Alabama drew itself a map that had six majority white districts, which in practical terms meant they were deeply Republican, and then one majority black district, which in practical terms meant it was deeply Democratic. But it is actually possible, pretty easily actually, to draw a second majority black district in Alabama. And as you mentioned, Galen, kind of under the way the Voting Rights Act is typically interpreted, anytime you it's possible to draw another majority minority district, um, you're obligated to do so. And so this federal court panel found that Alabama hadn't done this, so they struck down the map and ordered the uh, legislature to redraw a map that added a second kind of majority black seat. And of course, as mentioned, this has partisan implications as well and could add Democratic seats to their already plus 11 total nationwide. The reason this is so interesting is that Alabama's appealed that case to the Supreme Court, and actually any minute now, we could get a decision from the Supreme Court in this case, and there's a wide range of outcomes here. They could decide to kind of leave it alone, let the lower court ruling stand. And if that happens, that would then kind of strengthen, I guess, the precedent for where it's possible you need to add another kind of majority black seat or close to majority black seat. And it's possible to draw that in a number of other Southern states. Um, So namely Louisiana, if this Alabama case holds, they would I think very probably have to draw another majority black seat. It's also possible in South Carolina, although for reasons relating to geography, it's harder to do that. And South Carolina has also already passed their map, so it might be harder to undo an existing map versus in Louisiana, to which hasn't passed its map yet, to draw a map that adds a, a black seat. So basically from this court decision, there could be three more majority black seats created in the South, which obviously has a history of discriminating against black voters. So I think that could be very meaningful. And so there's a lot on the line there. But then on the other side, this is obviously a very conservative Supreme Court, especially on issues of voting rights. And it's possible that they could overturn the lower court decision in Alabama, which not only would return Alabama to its 6-1 map, but in, in so doing, because the Supreme Court likes to weaken the Voting Rights Act, they've done that a couple of times now in high-profile decisions, they could reinterpret the Voting Rights Act in a way that weakens this requirement for uh, majority-minority districts, which could redound in other states and, and also in future redistricting cycles by not protecting even existing uh, majority-minority seats. So big high stakes in this uh, appeal in Alabama. So- This is not the last time we're going to talk about redistricting on this podcast this cycle. We're going to be paying attention to all of these cases as they play out and see how the maps get redrawn. If they do get redrawn at this point in the process, you know, we talked for years about how, in general, Democrats had to win the House popular vote by two or three percentage points in order to take control of the House because of the 2010 cycle was advantage Republicans to a large degree in terms of gerrymandering. There's also some geographic considerations. Do you think that after this cycle is done, that will still hold true? Or are we going to be 
closer to a 50-50 proposition? We're definitely going to be closer to a 50-50 proposition. The question is how close and, and also whether it matters. You know, if the House ends up being biased by half a point in favor of Republicans, I think that's a very different ballgame than the multiple point bias that we've seen in recent elections. But I, I don't want to make a proclamation too early because, as we mentioned, there are these wild cards, particularly in a place like Florida and North Carolina and Ohio's remaps. But I will say, so yes, I think that the Republican bias in the House has been eroded somewhat. It is possible if things continue to break Democrats' way that it will completely evaporate and we'll get something close to an unbiased and totally fair House map nationwide. But I think there's still a range of outcomes possible. Now, if the bias is reduced to zero or close to it, it's not necessarily going to be because the U.S. now has kind of these really fair, competitive maps that the elections are going to be waged on. It's going to be in large part because everyone did as much gerrymandering as they could get away with and advantaged their own parties in different parts of the country. And maybe one of the biggest casualties, in fact, will be competitive seats. To what degree are we eliminating competitive seats in this process? Yeah, Galen, I think that's such a key point. I should have said, you know, having a fair house map nationwide, that doesn't necessarily mean that the individual elections are competitive. It just means that they're balanced. And I think it's a case of two wrongs don't necessarily make a right. But yeah, competitive districts have been a major casualty of this redistricting cycle. We're already down eight nationwide. That number is probably going to increase. This is part of a long-term decline in competitive house races. A lot of that is because we've just become a more polarized country and presidential voting is increasingly determinative of how people vote down the ballot. Also, of course, people have been self-sorting and the, the urban and rural alignment has really gotten locked in in a way that it hasn't been in the past, but also gerrymandering has played a role in this, as you can see, with kind of these sudden dips in competitive seats in redistricting cycles. But yeah, you know, I think we are on track for the fewest competitive House districts in a very long time. Uh, I don't want to say all of U.S. history because I haven't gone back to, you know, the 1800s, but certainly in recent political history. And I, I do want to reemphasize this fact that there's this question of like partisan gerrymandering and like which party has the advantage, but maps can also be gerrymandered even if they're proportional or, or fair by by party standards, but if none of these seats are changing hands in any election, regardless of whether it's a D plus six election or an R plus five election, then you still have a, a democracy that's not very responsive, and that's not great. Both parties win and everyone loses. <laughs> um, not to be too trite, but thank you, Nathaniel, for helping lay that all out. I know you'll be back on and we'll talk more about redistricting and gerrymandering as we love to do on this podcast, but that's it for now. Thanks, Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.